for the uh, banks. What are they good for? Absolutely nothing edition of Spin Cycle. In 10 minutes, we will be talking to amazing veteran finance reporter Alan Kohler about whether our current media landscape is equipped to uh, talk us uh, hoi polloi through this current episode of Fiscal Pain. Or even, uh, indeed, whether um, the traditional way of doing finance reporting is uh, up to speed with the sort of challenges of our time. I think I just heard the sound of a million radios (laughs) turning off. But if you've stuck with us, thank you. I'm, of course, I am Jess Lilly and I'm in the studio with, um, with Charlie Lewis from Crikey. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a very, it's been a really sort of, frantic media week which i'm sure we'll get into soon and um i was i was just like oh my god how are we going to cover everything and then i just dropped it all so (laughs) (laughs) i mean later on we are going to have a look at um uh, the abc's uh, haphazard relationship with fact checking (laughs) yes well in in one particular case in in a a very strange oversight shall we say in in uh who they considered a, a credible source in one of their stories this week um, but first, we will stay tethered to the rock and roll momentarily um, with a, a quick look at someone who seems to be tearing through the news landscape like a rocket in a dodging car the last couple of weeks. Um, Peter Noble, uh, OAM, as he's started to um, sign off his emails desperately to Blues Fest ticket holders, is... Um, the man behind Blues Fest in Byron Bay has been for many years and he should really be feathering his Byron Bay nest at the moment ahead of um, Blues Fest at Easter, but uh, instead he's been putting out a lot of fires in the media. Some might argue a lot of fires of his own making ever since uh, his um, February the 14th announcement. Was it Feb 14? Because that's ironic, isn't it? Um, that uh, Sticky Fingers is joining the lineup. Even the name makes me shiver. Uh, as they are a band with a, a pretty long and some might say nasty rap sheet and reputation um, for bad behaviour um, and some pretty aggressive mm-hmm. <laughs> behaviour as well, which we won't go yeah, into. No. But I, I do. I just find it really interesting the way that um, Peter Noble has chosen to forge through this path with the media that the. The um, obviously the day that Sticky Fingers was announced, there was a lot of um, pushback um, because uh, you know the the, the um, experiences that people have had. It's been other artists, other musicians. Thelma Plum has made an assault complaint against um, their singer, amongst others, and so. You know, of course, when you name someone like that headlining a festival, they've been laying low, they've been touring overseas, so haven't haven't been doing Melbourne sh- shows locally. <laughs> Some might draw the conclusion as to why. Um, but um, Peter made the big announcement and then seemed pretty um, taken aback and slightly mm. peeved by the response, which I would have thought you could definitely anticipate that response fairly solidly. Um, yeah, and the very next day he was uh, in the um, in the Sydney Morning Herald, unrepentant, um, calling Sticky Fingers the bad boys of Australian music, as though that sort of kind of apologising, apologetic mythology was going to calm things down. But then he made what what for me has been the um, most incredible comparison in this whole episode. He said. Lots of great artists over the years have had issues. 
Van Gogh had issues, but he was a great artist. That's what we remember him for. Just let this man be the artist that he is. He's just trying his hardest. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny parallel to make. Um, <laughs> partly because it makes it seem as though uh, the uh, issues that afflicted someone a very long time ago are the same as the issues that afflicted someone seven years ago <laughs> or, or maybe more even recently than that. Also, I think, I mean, we were talking about this before the show started about you, you sort of made the point uh, that this is what happens when someone doesn't hire a PR firm to deal well, with that was, stuff. I mean, that was the most, um, for me, this has been the, the, the fun, the kind of amusing aspect of all of this is watching um, Pete Noble just ping-ponging between media outlets. He's obviously got, he obviously has inroads after all this time. So he's been mm-hmm. on all the usual suspects a lot of radio stations he's drummed up some um a few column inches you know bemoaning um cancel culture but then he's also penning his own statements yeah yeah i mean this is the thing is we, we always complain um about you know uh sort of meaningless and dry pr speak that kind of skirts around the issue. I mean, that, that's the one thing you can't really accuse him of. <laughs> it's, it's pretty authentic, I think you would argue. I think, you know, yeah, you can you can say that, um, you know, media advisors and, and public relations, you know, specialists dull the edges um, and get in the way of um, authenticity. But by God, um, does Pete Noble actually desperately need one right now? Because, <laughs> um, again, when another – so, you know, he, I don't know. I just – I don't know whether he just thought he could keep doubling down and things would go away. But then, of course, bands have started pulling out. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard um, was the first public announcement as – you know, and they maintained that they um, they didn't think their values were aligned with the festival, i.e., um, they don't value being on a lineup with a band that um, you know makes people feel unsafe. Is the the pretty common refrain from a lot of people. Um, but and with every single kind of um, development, Pete Noble was back with another hand pen statement. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it just kind of has kept getting worse and worse for him. Um, it, it seems that booking and support, not just booking but supporting Sticky Fingers is has become his hill to die on. And Because Sampa the Great also pulled out, um, which I think a lot of people thought would happen earlier, and uh, then it turned out that her team had informed Blues Fest immediately upon mm. seeing the embargoed lineup for the festival and they'd left her name on the bill anyway, which just, again, is like, well, now you're being in disingenuous to your ticket holders because you're misrepresenting who's playing yeah, yeah. at the festival. And I think, you know, it comes to a certain sense of, yeah, integrity, I suppose, about... about um, and, and that's the thing, I think, that, like, it's, it's always... It's, uh, again, it's like there's nothing more rock and roll than reminding everyone that you've got an order of Australia. Like, there's nothing more <laughs> rock and roll than, like, I don't know. There's a thing of, like, this romantic idea of the swashbuckling, don't do anything you don't want to kind of uh, individualist rock star kind of thing. And then it's like, but then contractually you won't let Sam for the Great pull out, yeah. even if that's what she wants. Like, like that's You're removing her agency mm, mm, in favour mm. of defending this other artist. Um, I love the fact that he's now signing off emails directly to ticket holders, Peter Noble OAM. <laughs> 
Like, hold the line, guys. Hold the line. I've got an order of Australia. Um, of course, there's – it's, um, you know, it's given uh, some columnists an opportunity to, um, you know, grease up their cancel culture pen. And, yep. and one – I mean, most of them are, you know, just not even worth mentioning. But there was one great line from one in the age um, – um, and she wrote, bands have one job, play music and give people a good time. They're not a moral benchmark, nor should they be. We listen to music to hear great tunes, not ones written by the greatest paragons of virtue. I mean, so, like, there's like, there's some, I, I do sort of some, I do have some sympathy for the like, no, some, some art, it, it should be separated from the, the context in which it was made or at least from, from the, the, the personality of the person who did it. But the idea that, like, the most basic rock band you can think of, the most basic, like, um, always on the radio band, they will have had some political stance that they would have made in their time. It's like, like it's just a strange thing to be like, oh, it was much better in the 60s when bands didn't say anything about politics. That's it's what like, I mean. What like, how hell? can you say that bands, <laughs> bands uh, have no function their role is completely removed yeah. from cultural or political commentary I just, Th- that's both that's both uh, morally debatable but it's also just hist- completely ahistorical it just doesn't reflect at all what the, the, the whole idea of rock and roll in its like bones is emancipatory and political and 100% it's it's so str- it, it's the strangest thing to be like no what what people always wanted was was Vegas Elvis. But also, this is the, she's talking about the same festival that's having this um, big Archie Roach tribute. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, my my dude, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I mean, one thing, you, you know, that's the great thing about Archie Roach, never, ever did anything even <laughs> faintly political. And I think all, that's the thing we all most admire about him, isn't Just it? Just <laughs> these cute little tunes that were real cash, real casual. His, his catchy pop tunes is all Just we ever the, wanted the from Archie him. And his, Archie and his um, catchy pop, bless, R.I.P. Uh, anyway, I think that's enough on that. But um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens next in that little saga. And I just think um, for the first time ever, I'm like, dude, go get yourself a PR. <laughs> <laughs> Some PR representation. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Now we're joined by um, Alan Kohler. Alan Kohler has been a financial journalist for nearly 50 years. He began as a cadet in The Australian, uh, but he's been a columnist for The Australian Financial Review, for The Age, for The Sydney Morning Herald. He's the founder of Eureka Street and a columnist now for The New Daily, as well as a longtime finance analyst for the ABC. And we are delighted to have him with us. Alan, welcome. Thanks very much. No did I, worries. Did I, I didn't miss anything there. I know that um, there's, it's a pretty storied um, CV that you bring with you. <laughs> oh, well, you missed a couple of things. Uh, I was editor of the Financial Review uh, in the mid-'80s, and I was editor of The Age for a while. Well, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I was really fascinated by a recent piece that you did uh, for the uh, New Daily, where we kind of talked about the kind of the convenience of the way that the – a Reserve Bank of Australia is, is portrayed as independent, uh, that's always pre- deployed by various politicians, um, when, of course, that's not really the case in a lot of ways. The metaphor you use is the bank is, is a machine that the treasurer kind of winds up and then, and then turns his back on. Could you talk our listeners through that a bit? Uh, well, sure. The, um, the Reserve Bank uh, is uh, obviously a creature of the government. It's owned by the government. It's, um, uh, it's, it's been independent... That is to say, the decisions that it makes 
uh, independent of politicians since 1996. But before that, um, what it did was uh, always checked off with the Treasurer. So when we had a recession in 1991, and Paul Keating said at the time this was the recession we had to have, the, the Reserve Bank caused that recession by putting up interest rates in 1989 to 17%, but it was basically done with the government. It wasn't independent at the time. So when Paul Keating said that's the recession we had to have, he was kind of behind it. Um, in 1996, there was an exchange of letters between the Reserve Bank and the government, which affirmed that the Reserve Bank was independent and it had... Um, and, and it's had sort of three mandates as its, uh, you know, as part of its job, its objectives since 1959 when it was created. Uh, and those three mandates are that it um, needs to preserve the stability of the, uh, the currency. Uh, it needs to pursue full employment and the prosperity and welfare of the Australian people. So that's its job. Um, but the thing is, what you know, I suppose what I meant by the thing about, uh, you know, it's a machine that the toy that the government sort of sets going is that the government uh, appoints the governor of the Reserve Bank. It appoints all of the board members. Mm. Uh, it, it, the government established the mandate and the objectives of the Reserve Bank. So basically everything, that the, everything about the Reserve Bank is determined by the government. Mm. Um, it's just that the decisions it makes as it goes along are independent. But then it's but then it's completely answerable to the government on you know for those decisions as we saw recently in Senate estimates. Well, exactly, I, that's right. So the governor has to show up and you know be grilled by the by the pollies. I'm interested um, just to take a little detour into um, you know because I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you tonight is because. It's um, a big deal, um, finance reporting at the moment. It's affecting um, a lot of people, everyone, the interest rates and uh, the rising interest rates and inflation. And I think there's maybe a little bit of a um, a sort of a gulf between um, uh, the way that what's happening and how it's being reported and how people are, you know, understanding what's what's going on and I'm interested to go back to sort of when you started as a financial reporter you know um, as a kind of as a discipline who were you I mean who were you sort of uh, what was the the accepted wisdom about who you were writing to or for who your audience was and how you were meant to package the information to them um, right. Okay. I haven't really been asked that before. Who, who, who were we writing for? Yeah. Like exactly. I was, a, I was a kid. Like I was an eighteen-year-old cadet um, in 1970, actually. So, uh, who were we writing for? Well, we thought. I, I guess I thought we were writing for rich people, not yeah. not everybody. Mm. I mean, it's kind of you know, it was people who owned shares. Basically, mm. it was for the people who were at work in the city, the stockbrokers uh, and the investment um, houses and all that stuff. So uh, it's definitely changed over the years. So now, you know, what I do on the ABC News and what I write in the New Daily and so on, that's for everybody. You know, I'm trying to... What I'm trying to do is communicate uh, relatively complicated ideas um, to ordinary people. And so I don't see my job these days as writing for rich people anymore. Uh, Quite the opposite. 
I suppose that's an interesting thing because there is a bit of a sense that economics, a bit like, I, I suppose I kind of think of it as a, as a news topic anyway, a bit similar to something like geopolitics where people kind of don't integrate it with their day-to-day life until there's a big story about it and then suddenly they feel like they have to catch up on on kind of 20 years of policy that have gotten us to, to a certain point. And I suppose I'd be interested to know kind of what your approach is in terms of mm. trying to make that um, simplified, simplified and understandable to a kind of general audience. And I guess also possibly how you kind of rate the general tenor of, of finance and economics reporting in Australia. Um, okay, there's a few... Let's unpack that. I mean, I, the... the um, uh, I suppose my approach is to... Uh, is to bring to bear a knowledge of history, so that uh, the you know the, the the what's gone what's gone before is a part of what I talk about. Uh, so you know I always try to contextualise what's happening um, into into history, but also into how it fits in the rest of the world. Um, I think it's important to tell a joke occasionally because you know <laughs> people people like to have a bit of a laugh. So and also. Uh, uh, jokes tend to bring things down to people's level, you know, so that, you know, you can tend to understand it a bit, you know. Um, uh, what else? What was the third part? Is oh, how the general, finan- the general finance news reporting in this country, whether it does um, does that as well or whether... whether it, yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, look, I think it's pretty good, really. I mean, I, I think... Um, on the whole, most people are trying to understand what's going on. Most, most journalists are trying to communicate, uh, you know, not not always successfully, but I think on the whole... Uh, I mean, look, I, I think that the, what, what's occurred in the last couple of decades is a huge increase in house prices and a huge increase in, in household debt. So I think that's tended to change uh, the structure of the economy and it's tended to change the way people feel about finance and they, they tend to... And also the other thing is the superannuation. Mm-hmm. So everyone's now got a superannuation account. Um, so increasingly people are conscious of that and the fact that they are investors themselves. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, ordinary people are much more sort of uh, exposed to finance and economics than they have been in the past at a personal level because, um, firstly, of the superannuation and, secondly, because um, everyone's a bit exposed now because, well, a lot of people are because they've borrowed a lot of money mm. to buy a house. And so there's this sense of, crikey, I mean, I really need to know what's going on because I'm a bit on the edge, mm. you know. There's There does seem to be a bit of a tension at the moment in terms of reporting, on the one hand, you know, enormous um, company profits and corporate profits and bank profits, um, and then on the other hand, this um, sort of message of, you know, not austerity, but then, you know, the unfortunately we all have to take this kind of punch of in, increased in, interest rates, rates, which is ultimately just um, affecting, you know, mostly affecting renters and homeowners. Um in order to bring inflation down. In terms of how the government is, or even the Reserve Bank, is communicating the, the message, do you think that they're doing it effectively? Um, I think the Reserve Bank has mucked it up, really. I think that mm. they've been, they haven't been communicating very well at all. I think um, part of the problem is that the Reserve Bank is a bit of, in a bit of an ivory tower. They kind of tend to be very insular and they tend to, to talk only to themselves. So that when um, when they cut interest rates in 2020 to point to the cash rate, the Reserve Bank cash rate that they 
the, the interest rate that they control, they cut that to 0.1%, which is virtually zero, mm. um, in you know, towards the end of 2020. And then they started saying that they're going to that that rate's going to stay there for another uh, three years. Well, you know, they had no idea. They had no way of knowing that. That was that was a crazy thing for them to say to raise this expectation that interest rates would be able to stay there for point you know that point one percent for three years. For three years, that was mad mm. um, uh, because they couldn't know that. Um, but the reason they said it was because. Um, uh, but we had a pandemic, you know, like in April, sort of February, March 2020, uh, people like Philip Lowe and the Reserve Bank and the Treasurer and all this stuff, everyone was looking over looking over an abyss, right? They, they thought the economy was going to just collapse. And so uh, and when, and at that point, the cash rate, the RBA cash rate was only 0.75. So it had already come down too far. It was too low already. They couldn't cut it very much. So what they were trying to do was to um, was to further stimulate the economy, further stimulate spending, by promising to leave it there, or appearing to promise to leave it there for three years. And so uh, I understand what they were trying to achieve and why they did what they did, but it was a mistake um, because people believed them. People yeah. thought, well, yeah, interest rates are going to stay where they are for three years because that's naturally you'd think that. But, of course, what happened was, you know, uh, start of last year or May last year, up they go. You know, and now it's three point three five percent. So we've had nine interest rate rises in a row. And um, it seems that there's going to be more. And I, this is a bit that I find really hard to grapple with. And listen, I've got to be honest, I don't dip into the financial pages that often. There was a fantastic article though in the AFR the other day, which um, we've got to talk about. But anyway, I digress. Um, what I find so hard, infuriating, you know, as someone, as you said, it's everyone is affected by this now. Everyone has to invest in some form or another, whether they want to or not, in, just with super at a very base level. Um, and what I find really hard to grapple with is that um, the RBA or, you know, and Philip Lowe was recently is in, appeared in front of Senate Estimates and very unconvincingly, I think, stated his case, I suppose. And a lot of it is just like, well, you know, I mean, we don't know if this is going to cause a recession. <laughs> like, maybe. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, what? Don't you guys know what you're doing? Like, where? how do we... And then when someone asked about the, you know, huge profits of the banks, he's like, oh, well, you know, you have to have enormously profitable banks for, for a healthy outlook for a country. It just seems to be this, the way that, that they talk is so disconnected when you talk about trying to, you know, normalise this language for regular people. There's, it's so disconnected. And how can that give people confidence? Yeah, well, it is disconnected. That's correct. Um, as I say, they're kind of very insular in there in Martin Place in Sydney at the Reserve Bank. Um, they talk to themselves. Um, and Chalmers you know. has come out and said that he thinks they need to communicate better. But is that is that the solution? <laughs> well, it would certainly help. Um, <laughs> you know, but the thing is that you know uh, they said that they, the, the cash rate of say point one percent for three years, which it didn't, yeah. right? Yeah. And now they're saying, oh, interest rates probably keep going up and there'll be another two more. And everyone's kind of saying, oh, there's going to be two more. But why do we believe them now when we couldn't before? <laughs> exactly. should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't believe a word they say, really. And I suppose, is there... So, sorry, Anne. Um, is, is there any kind of... Um, 
precedent in your, in your time reporting of of the RBA, I suppose, being so publicly um, pilloried. <laughs> It's <laughs> pilloried, but publicly kind of mistrusted, and 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 I mean, I, I, in the time that I've been following these things, football has not been that big a deal, that much mm. of an immediate fixture. Now he's in the news all the time. Is that is that? I mean, I guess I suppose that the obvious time would be during, well, say, the global uh, financial crisis or something like that. Well, here's a, here's a bit of historical context, and and also at the same time a bit of jargon for you. <laughs> um, uh, when I was when I was growing up as a financial reporter. You know, through the 70s and 80s, um, uh, the central bank, the Reserve Bank, uh, didn't say a thing. It was basically mm. shut up. I mean, it never said a, never said a word. It would just do things. Um, but what happened in 1992 was the Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, uh, Ben Bernanke, um, uh, said d- d- uh, decided. No, it wasn't 1992. It was actually more recent than that. Um, uh, 2002, I think. Anyway, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which is the American equivalent of the Reserve Bank, um, hit upon an idea called forward guidance. And that his thinking was uh, that the Reserve Bank could uh, have an impact on the economy, not just by doing something, but also by what it said. And so... Uh, that began a process, a t- you know, a period which we're still in, of central banks such as the Reserve Bank um, trying to influence economic behaviour through what it says as well as what it does, and that's what we're in now. This is mm-hmm. what this is what the Reserve Bank tries to do when it says something like the Reserve, you know, the cash rate's going to probably going to stay where it is for three years, uh, which it did. You know, through through all of 2021, what I was trying to do was influence behaviour at the time. It wasn't trying to predict anything. It wasn't trying to say that's what will happen. What I was trying to do was to uh, have a further impact on uh, economic behaviour at the time, in addition to the impact of what it had done. And mm. this is the same thing it's doing now. So when it, when the governor opens his mouth, what he's trying to do is have have actually amplify the impact of their actions. The thing that I find interesting is, so the, the thing that, he keep, that everyone's on about now is that inflation has to come down, inflation has to come down, it's out of control. But then I've heard anecdotally as well that um, there are, you know, businesses that are putting prices up because, because the message has been so drummed into us about, about inflation that, that people are uh, sort of accept, oh, well, that's why prices are going up. You know, that in a way sometimes that message can cause a different kind of um, knock-on effect. Um, well, yeah, inflation basically is prices going up, right? I mean, that's, we talk about inflation yeah, exactly. and the and Bureau of Statistics puts out these numbers, these figures, the consumer price index, and it's gone up X percent or whatever it is, um, 7.8 percent. Um, but that's just people, that's just companies putting their prices up. Uh, and naturally, companies put their prices up wherever they can. It has to do with, um, you know, uh, supply and demand. So if there's if there's a fair bit of demand for their product and there's a bit of a shortage of supply, then they'll stick the price up. Um, the only uh, tool that anyone has in order to control this is interest rates. To um, stop people spending money. Well, that's right. It's to to reduce demand. So that's really it. I mean, and the trouble is that a lot of the time. Uh, the, the inflation is caused by supply problems. 
So, for example, the, the big inflation of the 1970s, 90s, uh, from 1973 onwards, was caused by the oil shock of 1973, which, uh, uh, when when the Arab states quadrupled the oil price, uh, and then the oil price went up again in 1979 because of the revolution in Iran. So you ended up with this huge increase in inflation that had nothing to do with demand. It was only because caused by the increase in oil prices. But the only thing that was able to be done about it was to put up interest rates in 1979 uh, through to 1981 um, and cause a recession. So that's what happened. So we had this shocking recession in 1982 um, to control inflation that wasn't caused by demand, but still that's all they were able to do. And that was the only way they could uh, control it. I mean, you you would never regulate an industry or something. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Well, there was, a, there was a referendum in 1948 to uh, put the ability of the government to control prices in the Constitution, but it was lost. Oh, really? Um, there was another attempt in 1972 to do the same thing, but it was lost again. There have been attempts over the years to give the government the power to control prices, uh, but it always uh, gets lost because... Uh, for two reasons. One is that um, we don't really trust politicians <laughs> for good reason. Yeah. And and secondly, when, politi- when political uh, uh, bodies, you know, when governments actually control prices, what you end up with is rationing. So, um, you know, you've just got to be careful uh, with that. I mean, but, but it is the case that ever since about 1980, we've had... Um, what used to be called economic rationalism and now is called neoliberalism, which is that markets are always right, that everything everything to do with markets is correct. And so, therefore, you know, we're living in a time, we have been living in a time when when, when markets are, um, how can I put it, a sort of almost religious... It is a strange thing, isn't it? There's sort of sense that... Um I don't know. It, people talk about the market and, and, and have for such a long time that we sort of forget that there are other ways to think about it. Mm. But people talk about it like it's a set of immutable scientific rules when actually it's just human beings making choices. Well, it's interesting as well because there are new markets now. You know, you look at cryptocurrency and they can't control, you know, that's a whole other, that's a whole other beast. Um, is there anything that you're seeing now in, in all the, the years that you've been um, – you know, reporting on finance, financial markets. Is there anything that you see now that surprises you or that is that you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's a change in the landscape? Um, oh, well, I'd, I'd mentioned that um, uh, the Albanese government actually introduced a price control last year, mm. which was the cap on gas prices and coal prices, yep. $12 per gigajoule. I mean, look, it wasn't much of a cap. It still let the gas companies make a fair bit of money. Um, so it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't a, a tight cap, but it was still, it was a price control. Um, so, you know, I think it kind of was an indication that there is an appetite to begin to do that. It's not like it's just um, something that you can't possibly do. I mean, the gas companies all complain like mad about it. Uh, and they warned that they warned that there'd be rationing and all that stuff, but there hasn't been. It'll be okay. It's fine. So whether that then leads to more uh, sort of price controls of that sort, I don't know. I think there possibly should be. I do think that um, uh, we we need over time to 
rethink the way we go about things like this. I wrote a piece in the New Daily a while ago in which I said that um, uh, in 50 years, maybe 100 years' time, when economists look back at this this time and the use of human misery to control inflation, and everyone will think we're just crazy. They'll think we're crazy. It was a terrible thing to do. Well, that's what it feels because... like. I feel like I'm either incredibly stupid, <laughs> I just don't get it, or like, what are we doing? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, 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 li- I likened it to um, a bloodletting as a way of overcoming, of, of, treating, of medical treatment, you know, mm. which was the, the only way that um, uh, doctors and surgeons dealt with illness uh, for hundreds and uh, hundreds of years. I mean, the last person who was, who was uh, uh, bled in order to get over the flu or whatever they did... <laughs> Well, uh, was only, well, it was only in the it was only in about the 1850s. I know. I watch horrible histories with my son. <laughs> so it's not that long. It wasn't that long ago that you know bloodletting through either through leeches or letting you know opening up a vein was the way that uh, doctors treated the flu. And when, I, I mean, this is. And Philip Lowe is the leech. No. Um, I, that's no, I, no, no, no. Alan, Alan Collar does not believe that, and neither does uh, Spin Cycle. <laughs> no, but, I, but, I, but I, I'm saying that you know, things change. You know, you come up with yeah. things that you think are absolutely uh, high quality technology, and this is the right way to go about it. You know, you find out after a while that that's not the case. Yeah. Right? I mean, it isn't this just because we're doing it now. We think it's the right thing to do. Isn't necessarily what we could be thinking. I guess that's that's what it looks like. It does look a bit like you holding so fast to these truisms, and rather than sort of looking at alternative ways to do it. And you know, that was I guess what I was kind of asking about back at the beginning. When you know, in terms of how, what were the accepted parameters of financial reporting? Do you you know, is it you accept all of that stuff and and report on it or you know is there now a role to actually you know understand it all and speak the language but really challenge it oh, i think there's more challenging going on now than there yeah. has been in the past that's for sure i mean um we were little lambs when i was young you know we just <laughs> we do what we were told sort of thing you know <laughs> uh, but we're a bit yeah we're a bit more bolshy these days <laughs> On that, on that note, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Alan Lamb. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, thank you for helping, helping a lot of us understand these, um, these kind of things that, you know, break our brains. Not at all. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Alan. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. Poor Alan Collar thought he was safe bringing up an anecdote about bloodletting in the 19th century, but no. No, no. You still had to try and defame someone, Jess. I still had to bring it straight back round (laughs) to the Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia in the very present day. (laughs) Charlie, this week uh, you wrote a column, didn't you, on um, uh, an incident at the ABC where there were perhaps a little lackadaisical with the fact-checking or the source-checking? Yeah, it was an interesting one that we did this week um, where uh, there was there was a complaint lodged with the ABC's ombudsman, essentially, over a, um, a, a news bulletin that their radio news team ran uh, in early February 
about a an investigation, quote unquote, uh, into Pfizer executives, so the the pharmaceutical company Pfizer, and the possible uh, deliberate mutation of the COVID nineteen virus. So, like, pretty serious stuff, you would think. Were and it. also um, a topic beloved. By uh, anti-vaxxers and, con- and yeah, COVID conspiracy yeah. theorists. So, so if you're going to report something like that, you better make sure you've got your your facts pretty straight. The the origin of this, so they were reporting on an investigation by a group called Project Veritas. Mm-hmm. Um, so if our listeners aren't familiar with them, that well, they live a better life than I do for one thing. Yeah, who are Project it, Veritas? Uh, they are a what would you? How would you describe them? The well, the way that ABC described them was uh, as an investigative news service. They they are they are nothing of the kind. They're um, a kind of hyper partisan. I guess you would call them like a kind of shock prank entrapment journalist uh, group. They, are they, they well lo- known as such. Oh, well, well known as such. Well known as such. They they do a lot of, uh, and they've been around for for over a decade now. They they do a lot American of American based or yeah, US yep. based, and they do a lot of hidden camera work. So they often find oh. particularly uh, kind of like they, they got um, a, uh, a US social services group, not-for-profit, shut down essentially because of a a video that they did appearing to appearing to find footage of one of the people that worked there um, advising them on how to become a pimp and how oh. to avoid taxes. It turns out it was heavily edited, very, very misleading, the uh, the, the employee in question. So it's kind of like conspiracy entertainment. Yeah, I suppose. So. I mean, really like very, very hyper-partisan, really tries to catch out uh, anything that's kind of uh, – Smaller liberal in the US, so they go for like candid yeah. camera for cookers. They go for they go for <laughs> social service, but they also they that's also my, talk- that's my that's my piss pitch, as they say <laughs> in the business. They um they also try and <laughs> they also try often to uh, discredit and embarrass big what they perceive to be big left leaning news organizations in the US. So they got caught out trying to plant false rape rumors with the Washington Post. Oh, and the funny thing was the Washington Post um in in unpiecing, unpicking that story, the, the fake story that they were pitched by Project Veritas, won the Washington Post a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> so it's like you just, just achieved the absolute opposite of what you were going for. They tried to do the same thing to CNN. They're just like uh, yeah, sort of pest, and 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 so many times they've they've had a scoop which has gotten some attention, and then it's like a bit of an investigation finds it's completely edited, it's completely misrepresentational. Um, so anyway, it was it was found that. And so then they set their sights on the ABC. Well, well, this to be fair, the, the ABC weren't weren't targeted. This is the thing; it, it wasn't like they got a tip. It wasn't like the ABC got a tip and followed it. They just reported this this investigation, quote-unquote, as though it were credible, as though it were by an organisation whose work you really needed to pay attention to. But it was really clear that it was Project Veritas. Very clear, very clear. They, they, they reported Weird. They, 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 they report in the in the item they said it was Project Veritas. So strange. The number, again, with all those things, you go, how many layers of oversight did that get through before someone went, oh, we shouldn't be... Uh, anyway, it's it's got. It, well, how the, pressed is the newsroom? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the ombudsman eventually, anyway, did a gave a ruling and said that this yeah did so, breach the accuracy so they, standards. It went to air, and what there were complaints. There were, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that they've just now been published in the last couple of days. Um, on how on embarrassing the, for the, the yeah, yeah, it's really really bad. <laughs> uh, so they, I mean, and and to be fair, look, I mean, also the other thing that I think you know, uh, if we want to be 
if we want to be sort of fair about it, the ABC did what you should do when you make a mistake of that sort, which is they put up a very unequivocal and very thorough kind of apology and retraction. They, they oh, said, "I really they, feel for that producer who brought yeah, that story I mean, to the table." Yeah, yeah. Who, who again? Who knows exactly? Unless what you never know. <laughs> they said that there was based on a not reliable source. The, the story should never have been broadcast, and we apologise for the lapse in editorial standards. So I guess you know, give them, well, give them that that they did uh, properly retract. It's just awful when stuff like that makes it through, though. Like mm. I, I'm cringing internally because it's hard enough um, in this current climate to get people to trust the yeah. news, yeah, yeah. and when you make such a blunder like that. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's the, it's one of the few times I've ever seen. Um, the ABC and Tucker Carlson in complete agreement about how important a story was. Oh, really? Oh, he he loved that story. He was oh, pushing it hard. ABC, yeah. what were you doing? <laughs> There's been some um, pretty full-on attempt at um, reputational um, uh, rehabilitation. Yeah. Um at the expense of Brittany Higgins in The Australian and uh, some fellow publications, like pretty badly in the last couple of weeks, hey? Yeah, yeah. The um, the Australian ran a a piece that they got – well, I say a piece. They, they got several pieces out of it, but a long interview with former Defence Minister Linda Reynolds who um, – essentially wanted to set the record straight once and for all on uh, on her part in the in the, the the Britney Higgins saga, which obviously has kind of rocked Australian public life for what two two three years yeah. now, but very long a long time. Um, and I suppose I mean like again we 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 sort of had this discussion before. I mean I think like you know reading the reading the piece. I remember when the story originally broke. It's actually, I mean, it's worth noting that the Australian broke the story that Linda Reynolds had called Brittany Higgins a lying cow. That was the Australian. It was one of a piece of reporting I thought was quite good at the time. Um, that at, at the time, Linda Reynolds' response was something along the lines of like, "Oh, it's very regrettable that a personal conversation has been leaked in this way," which I thought was a very strange thing to say about something that you yelled in your workplace. Mm. That's not a personal conversation. Well, That's in this instance, um, it, it's pretty. It's so filthy, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what the end game is now that they're not in government. Um, if it's just the dogged, one-eyed sort of partisanship of the Australian, but. You know, the, there's been some um, phone uh, message records of um, Higgins that were supplied to the AFP but were never actually featured mm. in the trial, have been leaked to journalists and were reported on in The Australian. Yeah. There yeah. Um, was also um, a conjecture around her settlement with the government that was um, misconstrued and then run with you know, from the Australian then out to 2GB and, yeah, yeah. and all the other usual suspects. And I just think, what what is what is the point? Yeah, you know? well, and, and again, it's just, it's just basic journalistic kind of protocol. These these um, supposed revelations in the in the piece could have been fact checked in five what, minutes. You fact fact check, or at least even if I mean, you can you know, obviously people tell you things that aren't true, or they try and fudge the truth all the time when you when you ask them questions. But you go to them for their comment. That's just that's that's. That is basic fairness, uh, which which um, Higgins was not approached about, for example, the settlement or mm. or the the strange detail. And they do this all the time to people. Uh, they did it to Duncan Storer, the guy on Q and A who talked about his um, financial issues. Um, they did it to Yasmin Abdul Majid a lot. 
the the detail of the coat and the the suggestive mm. element that she had a very nice coat. I, I still actually to this to this point I can't quite understand what are they trying to what say? they're trying to allege. They, mm. they they don't say it explicitly. They just say this is indicative of a gap between what you understand as the public and what the truth is the story actually is. But they never. They, but and I suspect if they were to extrapolate to on any of this whistling. stuff, it would it is the definition of a dog whistle because mm-hmm. unless you already know what is being said, unless it is already attuned to your hearing, it's meaningless. It's not mm. a detail that is of any use and that's all for this week thanks for listening you can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform and you can follow us on twitter at nad samble at lily juice and at the shuffle diary you can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show want to support spin cycle become a triple r subscriber Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.